Hi, I'm David Freudberg. This podcast derives from the Humankind Public Radio series, which I began hosting back in 1997. Our program recognizes how hard it can be, but also how necessary, for us to hold on to our humanity. So we've sought out people with stories that illustrate how they approach that quest. To aim high, to treat others as we'd like to be treated, to see others as more similar to us than different, to strive for patience and personal grace even in adversity, to be part of the solution, not the problem. We hope our podcast helps to reinforce and inspire your own quest. Thank you. Humankind is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund. Additional funding for this series has been provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Institutes of Health, the Annie E. Casey Foundation, and the Park Foundation. You know, it might be that at some time you try to talk about it to somebody which I think happened to a lot of us when we came home from Vietnam. We tried to talk to people about things we felt the need to talk about, and people didn't want to hear it. And then you kind of suppress it, you kind of bury it. So I think initially you have to be become conscious once again that there is something um, unfinished, something that needs to be dealt with. A tale of brave veterans who returned to Vietnam to help heal their emotional wounds. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. The war in Vietnam claimed millions of human lives, scorched the earth, and in its brutal violence shook the souls of soldiers and civilians who were there and who survived. American troops as veterans of any war returned home with troubled hearts and minds. But the soldiers who came back found little solace in the United States. Instead of a hero's welcome, they were greeted by a national agony over whether the war they had just fought was immoral. The deep, bitter divisions in America seemed to mirror the inner conflicts which haunted many of the veterans. Some were overwhelmed and turned to drugs as a way of relieving post-traumatic stress. In 1988, a small group established the Veterans Vietnam Restoration Project, which has conducted peacemaking trips back to Vietnam. Americans who once toted rifles there now carry shovels and hammers and build acutely needed medical clinics for Vietnamese civilians. Stephen Stratford, a Vietnam vet who once did jail time for drug-related offenses, has made four journeys back to Vietnam. It's very common that people will lose it on those trips at some point, where they will where they'll break down emotionally, go into tears, um, it, and you have to watch very closely for people who start to isolate themselves, um, you know, that don't come to the group meetings or something. Start staying in their room and not going out on the other activities. It's usually because, you know, you start thinking about it all again. You, know, you go there and it just, the memories come back, I mean, just right in your face. And I think it's very important that you have somebody with you that you can talk to about it that's, that cares about you. Um, help, hopefully somebody who's been through the same sort of experience. 
um, because we, we needed to do that for each other all the time. I can think of an example, for instance. Um, we built this clinic. It's 85 kilometers uh, northeast of Saigon in a village called Sung Hip. And when we went to clear the ground to put in the foundation, um, when they burned the weeds off, two mines exploded. When we started scraping the ground off, we uncovered mines, uh, mortar rounds, rifle rounds, rocket launchers, boots, helmets. All of this was American equipment that was just left around, lay, laying on the ground, just under the ground, everywhere. Which, by the way, still kills Vietnamese people every day. There's, their stuff is, the countryside is littered with it. Um, and what, one of the things that sticks in my mind is when we found the first mortar round, live mortar round, and one of the guys on the team was holding it up like this. And some of the guys, you know, ran to get their cameras and started taking pictures and everything. Well, one of the guys lost it. You know, I mean, it, he sat down and he couldn't stop crying, you know, seeing it happen. And uh, It brought it all back. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me to go over and sit down, put my arm around him and say, you know, it's all right, man. Get it out. Get it out. It's cool. You know, I understand. Memories of Vietnam, from which U.S. ground forces finally withdrew in 1973, conjure up an excruciating chapter of recent history. Portrayed by American leaders as an assault on communism, it was a ferocious war that played out not only in the crowded cities and steamy jungles of Southeast Asia, but also via television in living rooms across the United States. We watched pictures of body bags containing dead soldiers and learned about napalm, a bomb material that sticks to its targets as it burns their flesh. Stephen Stratford, a California teenager, was among the hundreds of thousands of frightened young Americans shipped off to a distant war. I chose the intelligence career field because it was the most difficult one to get into. It had the, you need to have the highest uh, scores on all the tests to get into it, so it seemed sort of exclusive. I thought it would somehow be better. And then I was trained in Denver, Colorado in, in, my, in my career, military career. Um, spent a little bit of time in Mountain Home, Idaho, and then was sent to Vietnam. And my job in Vietnam was to provide targets for pilots to bomb in Laos. And of course, Laos was a neutral country during the war. And the whole time that I was doing my job, the president was telling the American people and the U.S. Congress that we were not bombing Laos or Cambodia, which we were every day I was there. And the rationale was that it was sort of self-defense. If we didn't destroy the guns or the tanks or the troops on the Ho Chi Minh Trail, they would eventually end up in South Vietnam and, and, and would be used against other Americans. That it, we've got to stop them there before they they get to the south and can kill our people. And um, <clears throat> initially, I was able to rationalize it in that fashion. However, about halfway through my tour of duty, they changed the uh, rules of engagement. And they said from now on, any Laotian village that had their crops planted in rows was a target because the Laotians didn't have that technology. So the communists must either be there or they've been there. So that makes it a target. So beginning then, every Laotian village that had their crops planted in rows was destroyed. And I, I mean everyone in the village was destroyed. The whole village was destroyed. And these were people in a neutral country that didn't even know what this war was about in isolated areas. And, 
And I couldn't rationalize that. Were you convinced that the mere fact that someone had crops planted in rows did not necessarily indicate that they were communist connected? Yeah, I, d I did not buy that at all. Whether, whether there were communists there or had been communists there was still not justification to kill every man, woman, and child in the whole village, especially since it was a neutral country, which is against the Geneva Conventions, it's against the Nuremberg War Standards, it's against all international law to do what I was ordered to do every day. And, and I found it very difficult to do it at that point. And it was about that time that I became a heroin addict in Vietnam. When I came back from Vietnam, I, I remained addicted to heroin until 1984. During the period when you struggled with your drug problem, did you directly associate that with the uh, bitter memories from your time in Southeast Asia? Not initially. Um, I, I, was, I did not become aware of post-traumatic stress disorder until I was incarcerated um, in 1984 when a, 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 a vet center outreach counselor came around to the prisons in the county and the jails and interviewed the veterans. And that's when I found out that I, what PTSD it was and that that's what I had. How did you react to that news? It was, it was uh, uplifting and it was, it gave me hope um, that there's something I could do about it. I had, during that period of time that I was addicted to drugs, I spent five of those years in residential drug treatment programs trying to get off the drugs. And when I was in the programs, I would be off them, and I would be able to stay off them when I got out until I had some sort of um, emotional or traumatic experience, and then I would go right back to using the drugs again. What was the nature of the inner conflict you experienced having come back to the States that you feel fueled your addiction? Well, we were pretty much shunned when we came home from the war, um, especially at the time when I came home. The, the war had, the majority of the nation was at that time opposed to the war. And, and, that it, and yet it kept going and going and going, even after they elected a president who promised to end it immediately. It just kept going and going and going. And, uh, you know, they've been, they've been showing the, the body count on the TV news like a football game score for, for years, and everybody was just kind of numb to it all and didn't want to think about it. And uh, didn't want people talking about it, didn't want people around them who reminded them of it. And, it uh, caused, caused me to go further inward. I think the thing that helped me with that more than anything else was on my first trip back to Vietnam in 1991. I went over uh, and participated in a demonstration with 32 other Americans against the U.S. trade embargo. In the whole time that I was over there, not one Vietnamese person showed any resentment, animosity, or hatred towards me. And, and it was obvious who I was and what I was doing there, that I was a, a veteran of the war and that I fought against the Vietnamese. You were surprised by their open attitude? More than surprised. It, it, it's hard to even understand how, I mean, if you, I put myself in their place, and if some other country had come over here and tried to conquer me and killed, killed off millions, literally millions of my people, and they came back, I think I would harbor a lot, I think most Americans would harbor a lot of animosity and resentment and, you know, like, what the hell are you doing here? Get out of our country, you know, you, and whole, I, I, I would think 
that most Americans would hold those people responsible for the things that have happened. They don't. The Vietnamese don't hold us responsible. How do you explain their lack of vindictiveness? Well, for one thing, they very clearly separate the people from the government. They realize that the American government does horrible things, but that the American people aren't horrible people. Um, and they realize you know, that there's a very distinct difference between the people of a country and a government. Um, and I think a lot of it, too, has to do with their religion and their culture and, and the fact that they were the victors and it was, a, it was a struggle for independence. They won. They were happy. You know, like we, we welcomed the British back after we got our independence, you know, because we were the winners, you know. But uh, <clears throat> the losers don't handle it quite that way, quite the same. Um, but I think a lot of it has to do with Eastern culture and religion. Um, on that trip, we were walking, like doing a demonstration through the cities, uh, Hanoi, Haiphong, Hongai, Hue, Da Nang, Vien, Ho Chi Minh City, Vung Tau, all these places we, we would parade through the streets carrying banners and, and, and a demonstration against the embargo. Well, when we started, we started in Hanoi, none of the Vietnamese would join us. In fact, they looked very suspiciously at us because um, it's not one of their customs to have parades or demonstrations. And uh, they were afraid they'd get arrested if they joined us as well. And so after a couple, going through a couple of cities and experiencing that, we decided when we arrived in Vien, which is in the southern portion of what used to be North Vietnam, an area that was twice completely destroyed by B-52 bombing raids. Um, we decided to go out on the streets the night before and tell the people, the local people who lived in the area where we were going to do this, who we were, why we were there, and invite them to participate and why it would be important that they do. And so I was with a couple people and a, an interpreter and I was going down the street and I stopped at a little stand and, and uh, bought a beer and bought one for the owner of the stand. And, and we sat down and started talking. And as Americans, or as even Caucasians, but especially Americans, everywhere you go, you draw a car crowd in Vietnam. We look very different from them. And there aren't many people over there like us. So there was a big crowd all around as we're sitting there talking. And I explained to this man that I was an American Vietnam War veteran and that, that I you know, fought against the, Viet, the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong, and that uh, my government made me do some things that I felt badly about. And, and, and I was coming back to sort of make amends and to do something to help them. At that point, he began to talk, and he told me, he says, I'm a veteran too. Um, I was in the South fighting when the war was going on. And when I was fighting in the South, my wife and my seven children were killed in the B-52 bombing raids. And we're sitting almost knees to knees together, and he reaches across and grabs my hand in both of his hands. He says, thank you for coming back. Let's let bygones be bygones. Let's be friends. And that, something clicked inside. So I'm going to get goosebumps right now just talking about it. But, it, you know, it's like if this man who lost his whole family because of these bombing raids could forgive me, maybe I could forgive myself. And, and it, it just... You know, it, it caused a major change in me, which my family all noticed um, and when I came back, and everybody that's known me has noticed the difference. How did you change? It, well, it felt like a, like a big load was lifted off my shoulders. Um, I felt lighter. I felt uh, I could be more open. You know, I, I felt like I didn't, kind of like I didn't have, um, have to hide this anymore, or I don't know, it's hard to explain. But it was, a, it was a liberating sort of feeling. I'm much more outgoing now as a result. I used to be very tight-lipped and reserved.
We're talking with Stephen Stratford of the Veterans Vietnam Restoration Project at vvrp.org. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. What brought you to the Vietnam Veterans Restoration Project? Well, I finally ended up, as I mentioned earlier, in prison because of drug-related crimes. And I ended up spending about one year in solitary confinement. Um, I had testified against someone on two charges of attempted murder, and they had put a contract out on me in the prison system, so I was in protective custody. But when, when somebody's after you in prison, they don't lock the people up who are after you. They lock you up to protect you. So it's, it's kind of like being buried alive in your bathroom. I got out twice a week to take a shower for 20 minutes, and the rest of the time I was in a concrete box. No radio, no television, no books, nobody to talk to. Did your memories from the Vietnam experience enter into that All jail cell? All the time. All the time. Much less so now than ever before, but, but still I have nightmares. Um, I used to have them much more often. And in that situation, I had them all the time. And, but what I, I came to the conclusion that if there was some way I could learn to control my thoughts when I was awake and not think about the negative things I thought about all the time, perhaps my nightmares wouldn't be as bad and my waking existence would be better. And this is a concept that had never even occurred to me that people could control what they think about. Um, it, but I, so what I did was whenever I caught myself thinking negatively, I would make myself think about a time when I was at peace. I could look out the bars in my window and there was one little spot where I could see up in the hills where there weren't any houses, there weren't any cars, there weren't any people, you know, there were trees. Every once in a while you could see birds moving around out there. And, and I would just stare out there and think about, you know, at these times. And, and it would work. You know, lo and behold, it did work. And then I could go about doing other things and thinking about other things. And, and, and so I didn't spend my waking hours thinking about all these negative things. And, and it, 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 as a result of that, I didn't, my nightmares weren't as often and weren't as intense. And that was a very self-realization. It lifted me up to a level where I could see things differently. And, uh, and, and I began to reflect on, you know, what my nightmares were about and, and what I'd done and what I might be able to do about it. And that, that's when I first decided that I needed to go back to Vietnam and do something to help the people if I was ever going to feel good about myself. Where did that come from in you? And, and exactly why did you think that that would be a good strategy for healing yourself? Well, I think part of it is that I felt like I'd been um, hiding from that, from that bad experience in Vietnam for a long time, that I'd kept it suppressed, that, and that it, was, it controlled my behavior and it controlled my thinking, and, and you know, it was manifesting itself in ways that, that uh, disempowered me. It was and, the demon behind your addiction, for example. Yeah, yeah, it's like always there. And, and, uh, and also would leave me feeling powerless to do something about it. Like, you can't go back and change the past. 
it's there. You know, you've got to learn to cope with it somehow. And it seemed to me, and this it was kind of a, for me it was an original thought and not necessarily in these words, but I needed to, I needed to uh, overlay the bad memories with good memories of that experience with, about Vietnam. And that, uh, that if I were able to go back, part of it was that and part of it was, was just facing it, facing the trauma, facing um, what happened, taking responsibility for, for what I'd done and, and doing something about it, um, taking action and not just thinking about it or talking about it or, you know, doing something about it. I thought that that would uh, help to liberate me from the past if I was able to go back and do that and sort of make amends, sort of uh, um, pay my karmic debt, you know, sort of uh, something that needed to be done. And, and, and it was, I'd also concluded that the longer you put off those kinds of things, the harder they are to do. Why build health clinics there? Well, largely due to our trade embargo, Vietnam is one of the poorest nations in the world. Their medical system is beyond being antique. It's almost, uh, it, it, would, it would shock any American that goes over there. And when the first time, first time I went there, I went to one of the biggest hospitals in Saigon, a Tuzo Street Women's Hospital. They invited me into the room to observe surgery taking place. No sterile conditions, no masks. Anesthetic is, is almost non-existent. It, it's, you know, that's the last place in the world you'd want to get sick and need medical attention. It's, it's just frightening. So, in other words, the need is just unbelievable for that, for, for medical supplies, medical equipment, um, medicine. While conditions there have somewhat improved since the U.S. trade embargo was lifted in 1994, Vietnam remains one of the world's neediest countries. In response, Veterans Vietnam Restoration Project has sent over more than a dozen volunteer construction teams. Since 1989, funded through private donations, they have built a friendship clinic, added a surgical wing to a children's hospital, created housing for amputees, and constructed a social care center for the elderly and orphans. And it wasn't only Vietnam the veterans were rebuilding. It was phenomenal changes in these people right before your eyes and uh, it was uh, for instance people that we have a training a team training before we go over for four days where everybody gets to know one another and find out their motives for going and and just divide up the responsibilities that will have to be taken care of on the trip and and uh, during the team training is when we really first get to know each other and everybody's going over and there were several people that were totally tight-lipped I mean they'd sit there with their arms crossed all the time and not look you in the eye, and when they did talk, they just used little short sentences, and and uh, very suspicious of everything, and didn't want to participate in the meetings, and didn't want to, you know, were very uh, resistant to to most everything. And some of those same people, when we got over there, ended up running the meetings, and uh, volunteering to to do things that they they didn't volunteer to do anything before they went over there. They just opened up. They opened up. Yeah, it's like it's like a. A flower blooming, you know. Just, in fact, we used to sit on the on the balcony of the hotel where they put us at. Um, we had a, we had a, about a twenty kilometer trip every day from the hotel to the job site. And in the evenings, we'd come back and we'd all take a shower and everything. And we'd sit around and, and talk. 
And uh, one of the things we were talking about is, is why is this happening to us? You know, wh you know, what's making this feel so different? And some of the conclusions we came to were that, you know, first of all, when you go into the military, especially during a time of war, um, you're brainwashed to dehumanize the enemy, to make them something less than human so it's okay to kill them, you know? And they encourage racism, bigotry, you know, like they're gooks, they're slopes, they're commies, they're reds, they're, they're you know, all these negative things, these people we're going to go kill. And uh, so that, and we're teenagers, you know, at the time you're going through this, you're teenagers, and that's the time in your life when, mo when most kids are, are really learning how to form lasting relationships outside of the family and, you know, to reach out to other people. And, and we're being taught these aren't really people, for one thing. And another thing is that you didn't tend to make too good of friends because they didn't last long. And something could happen to them in the war. They'd be sent home, you know. So you, you yeah. kind of held back on forming any kind of uh, relationships with people. And then when we came home, we were shunned by the people in our neighborhoods and our families and, and, and what have you. And that further reinforced that. So what we concluded is that we'd really stopped growing in that area of our life at that time. And the area of being able to build relationships. Build relationships and, 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 and form emotional attachments with people. Um, you know, it's like stunted our growth there. there. And that's a lot of the... Um, symptomology of post-traumatic stress disorder has to do with not being able to maintain long, long relationships, not being able to, to open up with people emotionally. And, and you don't even realize it. You don't realize it. You just think it's you. It's just part of you. It's just me, you know. Why don't you change? Well, it's just me. But you get over there in that situation and, you, and you're confronting it and you're seeing, number one, the war is over. There is peace here. These people have forgiven us. There is no resentment. I don't need to feel bad. And, and all of a sudden that area starts to grow again. And uh, you know, a lot of really lasting relationships are formed on these teams. Relationships among the veterans? And among the people in Vietnam. In fact, I, I think it's, if not a majority, a significant minority of the people that we sent back have been back again and again. And when they go back, they take medicines, they take medical supplies, they go teach English, they go they go uh, help build clinics. They do additional projects. Um, and several of them have bought, brought uh, children with facial deformities or that need operations they can't get in Vietnam back to America to get that help. It's, you get over there and you see their need and you, and you also see how it makes you feel. Another thing too that's unusual, the people there are so appreciative of every, anything, any little thing that you do for them very appreciative. Americans aren't too appreciative, you know. I mean, they really, if you come there and you help them, you're their friend for life, you know. They'll write to you, they'll, you know, you, if you show up, if, they're, if they have to sell everything they own to get to the airport when you arrive, if you're coming back, they'll do it to be there, you know, things like that. And does their sense of gratitude further help to relieve you of the feelings of guilt oh, and yeah. remorse? Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's empowering. The whole experience is empowering. Do you think that you have now come to terms with this very difficult chapter of your life and uh, put it to rest? Yeah, I don't, I, now I'm, I'm still involved in what, I, what, I'm, what I'm doing because it's very re rewarding for me personally. I mean, I feel very proud of what I'm doing. It makes me feel very good about myself. And uh, that's something I think is crucial for people that have been down the road I've been as far as drug addiction and what have you. 
Yeah, so I'm, I'm involved in, in work that helps people heal, and that's the kind of work I want to do. We've been talking with Stephen Stratford, former executive director of the Veterans Vietnam Restoration Project, recorded at Western Public Radio in San Francisco. Listening to Humankind, I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart Rose. Editorial assistance from Thomas Royal. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is produced by Human Media in association with WGBH Boston and Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Shart Media. You can hear more episodes of our series at humankindpodcast.org. That's humankindpodcast.org. This segment, Healing the Wounds of War, is Humankind Program number 6. The executive producer is David Freudberg. Please subscribe to our free weekly podcast. The title is Humankind on Public Radio. You can find it at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, NPR One, and all major podcast services, as well as through our website. Again, the podcast title is Humankind on Public Radio. And if you'd like to support our program, please visit humankindpodcast.org. And at the top, click on How You Can Help. Thank you.